Scripture reading is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 1 through 6, on page 965. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing in their case. It is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Will Gadara is the former co-owner of 11 Madison Avenue in New York City, which at one time under his leadership grew to be considered among the very best restaurants in the whole world. As a young man trying to transform what up until that point had been a solid but fairly unspectacular fine dining establishment, his first task was to win over the staff to his vision of what they could accomplish. So he spent his first few months on staff in a leadership position, uh, listening, trying to get to know the restaurant, trying to hear from the employees to find out what its strengths and weaknesses were. And finally, after a few months of that, he felt like he was ready to call them to his way of doing things. So at a daily staff meeting, he said this. He said, we're gonna make this restaurant, one of the best restaurants in New York. It's not going to be easy, because being the best is never easy. But we are going to make it fun. If that's not right for you, I totally get it. We'll help you find a better fit. But if the idea of working at one of the most exciting restaurants in New York gets you fired up, then I hope you stick around, because we're about to take off. He continued on. I promise I'll try to be consistent to what's fair and what's right. I'm also clear about what my job is, which is to do what's best for the restaurant, not to do what's best for any of you. More often than not, what's best for the restaurant will include doing what's best for you, but the only way I can take care of you all as individuals is by always putting the restaurant first. By all accounts, that's exactly what he did, and the results followed just as he hoped they would. It strikes me that the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Corinth serves a, a similar function to that restaurant manager's speech. Uh, if you remember, the church at Corinth had been skeptical of the way Paul had conducted himself in their midst. Uh, false teachers had infiltrated the church, and they were arguing that Paul's authority was illegitimate, that his, he lacked leadership and sophistication, that he didn't have enough poise to serve as the, the leader of the church. And so as we've been reading through 2 Corinthians, we've been seeing that Paul wants to make his case to defend the legitimacy of his ministry among them, to explain why he doesn't do things in a way that might seem right to them. We've seen he's not so interested in their opinion of him, but rather 
he's concerned to make sure that they embrace the truth about Jesus that he had been sent to proclaim. So we saw back in chapter 2 that his, he said his ministry was like being led in a, a triumphal parade in honor of the conquering Lord Jesus. Uh, last week, we saw that he, he said he aimed to be a man of sincerity, not like his opponents who treated God's word as something to be marketed and sold. Uh, we ended chapter 3 last week with Paul telling us about the greatness of our salvation in Jesus, brought to bear on the lives of God's people by his Holy Spirit. And if you remember, Paul pointed back in chapter 3 uh, to the book of Exodus, where Moses would meet face to face with God, and as a result, his face would shine for a while. But eventually, that, that shining would fade. And so Moses would, would put a veil over his face when he would meet with the people of Israel to keep them from freaking out about this shining face and the diminishing glory. We saw last week that Paul said that things were different now. We have something actually better than Moses. Right? Moses, from time to time, would go into God's presence on behalf of the people. But now, Paul said in chapter 3, we have the ministry of God's Holy Spirit. God always present with us, not meeting with us occasionally, but actually dwelling in us. And just as that restaurant manager had to clearly communicate his priorities in order to get people on board with his way of doing things, so when we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we see the Apostle Paul is making his operating principles clear. He says, I'm going to do what's right for the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus. That might not be popular. Corinthians, it might not be even what you think I should be doing. It might not be what you enjoy or you respect, but Paul knew in the end it would be what was best for the church and for the glory of God. And so let's turn there and see what the apostle says here in the first few verses of, of chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians. Uh, let's start by seeing how Paul understands what God has done for us in Christ. And then I think we'll be ready to move on and see what that meant for Paul's ministry. So in terms of an outline, if you'd like to take notes, that'll be, that'll be the two things I want to see. First, let's look and see what Paul tells us in the, these verses about the glory of the gospel. And then second, we'll see what that meant for Paul and what that means for us. So first, let's look at the glory of the gospel as Paul proclaims it in this passage. So if you remember last week, we left off at the end of chapter 3, in 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul said this. He said, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So as Paul begins writing chapter 4, he's working with this idea of the glory of the Lord. Now, when the Bible talks about God's glory, it, it generally means one of two things. In one sense, the Bible will speak about the glory of the Lord in a way that's synonymous with his, with his honor or his wonderful reputation. So the Bible often talks about God doing something for his own glory, right, in order to bring honor to himself. But in another sense, the Bible talks about God's glory as the, the brilliant light, the shining that surrounds his presence. So there are times in the Bible where God reveals himself, and when he appears, there is this incredible shining light. And that light, that shining that comes along with God's presence is referred to in the Bible as his glory. So this is the glory of the Lord that made Moses' face shine. 
Or if you remember in Luke chapter 2, when the angel of the Lord appears to the shepherds to announce Jesus' birth, we read there that the glory of the Lord shone around them. And at the end of the Bible, in Revelation 21, 23, we see that in the, the heavenly city, there, there is, we're told, no need for sun or moon because the glory of God will serve as light for the people there. Right? You can probably sort of intuit the purpose and the meaning of this bright light. Why it is that when, when God appears, there is this shining. It's a way of communicating God's holiness, his beauty, his perfection. Right? Paul himself had experienced this on the road to Damascus. He was on his way there to destroy Christians. And suddenly the risen Jesus appeared to him and stopped him in his tracks. And there was this bright shining light that blinded Paul. Right? He wasn't confused about the, the meaning of it. It meant that he was interacting with someone far greater than himself. And so here at the end of chapter 3, we saw Paul's using this idea of glory, right? This bright, shining light that attends God's presence. He's using it in a metaphorical sense, right? A spiritual sense, right? With Moses, the glory of the Lord was a literal shining light, right? So intense, in fact, that Moses' face kept shining long afterwards, but now, Paul says in chapter 4, God has acted decisively in history to save his people by sending his son. And the glory of the Lord now is something that we experience and perceive spiritually rather than physically. So there at the end of chapter 3, when Paul says, we behold the glory of the Lord with unveiled faces, right? he's not suggesting that to become a Christian is to see a bright shining light. Right, when he says that we're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, right, it doesn't mean that our faces are shiny and bright like Moses's. Rather, Paul is speaking spiritually. To behold the glory of the Lord with an unveiled face is to have a spiritual apprehension, to, to be given an understanding and, and an appreciation deep in your soul. To be transformed from one degree of glory to another is to experience change, not on the level of your face, but at the level of your deepest heart. Right, The glory of the Lord, that bright shining light that accompanies his presence, it's a sign of his beauty and holy and grandeur, his holiness and grandeur and power. Right? If, this light were, if this room were suddenly flooded with a, a blinding white light, you'd have a pretty good sense you were in the presence of something greater than yourself. And so here, Paul uh, says we are, we are beholding that kind of glory in a spiritual sense. Uh, look at how Paul speaks about the gospel here. And notice two things in particular in chapter 4 about the way Paul talks about the gospel. There at the end of verse 4, he speaks of the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And then in verse 6, he talks about the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see right there in those two verses, Paul is, is intertwining a few themes in his discussion of Christ. Right? You see he's talking about light. He talks about glory. He talks about the gospel. Right, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So what I want to do is unpack those three words that Paul uses there, the gospel, light, and glory. Let's look first at that word light and see what Paul means, or I'm sorry, the word gospel. Right, when Paul talks about the gospel, 
He's talking about the fundamental foundational message at the heart of Christianity, right? The Greek word that Paul uses there that we translate as gospel, it, it literally means good news. So at its heart, Christianity is the proclamation of good news. It's the message that God has done something wonderful for us. And that's actually pretty important to get that in place in your mind. Most religions come to you with a list of things that you need to do. At their heart, most religions are a message of what you need to do in order to make God happy with you. So on some level, the message of the religions of the world is clean up your act. Perform these religious duties. Don't eat this. Don't drink that. Curry favor with the divine by offering certain gifts and sacrifices and observing certain rituals. Right? Change out the particulars. But basically, every world religion tells you some version of those things. But Christianity isn't a message about how you climb your way up to God. But it's actually a proclamation that God has come to you. It's good news that God has done for you what you cannot do for yourself. The gospel is the good news of God's decisive activity in Christ to save people who are unable to save themselves. The gospel is the good news that God saves sinners. See, naturally, each and every human being is alienated from God. We We have broken his law. We have insulted his kindness. We've lived our lives with little to no regard for God and his ways. We've pursued our own desires. We've done what seemed best in our own eyes. Right? God has given us life. He has given us gifts, opportunities, resources, strengths, and abilities. And he's given to us to them for his purposes. But we've used them for our own. Right? And so even the best of us, even, even those of us who might qualify as, as being good people in the eyes of the world. Right? Someone who pays their taxes, shows up for work on time, raises their kids with a with love and kindness, gives to charity, occasionally helps out their neighbors, right? Even that kind of good, decent person, it turns out is millions of miles away from being good in God's eyes, right? Because even if you are one of those good people, right? I I assume you know yourself well enough to know that you still fall far short of even your own standards, let alone God's, right? If you took the things that that no one knows that you've done, the things that no one knows that you think, the things that maybe you can't even see about yourself, that everyone else in your life sees clearly, those things about you that you just can't seem to change. Right? Take all of those things and then hold them up to God's perfection, his holiness, his glory. I think you can understand why the Bible tells us that, that on our own, naturally, we're not right with God. And since we're the problem we can't also be the solution. Again, this is where Christianity is really different from every other message out there. Right? The, the world tells us constantly, your problems are outside of you, what other people have done to you, the way that you were raised, right? even your own sort of biology. But the solution is deep down inside. But actually, the, the message of the gospel says, no, actually, the problem is inside you, your rebellion against God, your love for yourself. And the solution is outside of you. God has to intervene. He sent his son to take on human flesh 
Jesus became a man in order to obey God perfectly where we were unable to do so. Instead of enjoying the blessing that he deserved, Jesus offered his life as a sacrifice on the cross for us. There as he died, he took on himself our sin and our guilt. He hung in the darkness of our evil and our ignorance as our substitute. But the gospel message is also that Jesus didn't stay dead. But three days later, he rose from the grave in victory over sin and death and now offers salvation, forgiveness of sins, eternal life to anyone who will hear that message, turn from their rebellion against God and come to him in humble trust and faith. It turns out there is nothing you need to do in order to be made right with God because Jesus has done it all. All there is for you to do is to take hold of this salvation as a gift. That's what the Apostle Paul means when he talks about the gospel here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. That's the good news, the proclamation that God saves sinners like you and me, people who could not save themselves. So that's the first word in our, our little triad, right? Paul's talking about gospel he talks about light. He talks about glory. So let's move on and see what he means then by light. If that's the gospel, why is he talking about light here? Again, Paul's using figurative language, right? It's not that there is a literal light shining out of the gospel. Rather here, when Paul talks about light, the light of the gospel, he, he's talking about the, the truth or the, the understanding that the gospel brings, when Paul says that the gospel comes to us as light, he's saying that it shines truth and knowledge into our world. Right, Paul's drawing on an image that has its roots in the Old Testament. Uh, we see there in the Old Testament in several places, this idea of truth or knowledge or understanding is connected to the image of light. So for example, in Psalm 43, the psalmist asks the Lord to send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me, let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. In Psalm 119, the psalmist says, the unfolding of your words gives light. Okay, what does that mean? It imparts understanding to the simple. So Paul's grabbing onto that sort of Old Testament context and language, and he's saying that there is a light that emanates from the gospel message. And that light is the revelation of truth concerning the righteousness and salvation of God. Maybe one way to understand what Paul means here by light is by considering the opposite. Right? If the gospel message is light shining into our world, then its opposite would be the darkness of sin and ignorance of God. Right? That makes sense. In Psalm 82, we read a condemnation of the, the rulers of Israel, who wouldn't protect the poor and the vulnerable. So the psalmist says they have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Right? For the psalmist, to be in darkness, to live without light, means to, to lack knowledge and understanding. Right? We use this same kind of idiom in English in our daily lives. Right? If someone doesn't know what's going on, we say they're in the dark. Right? But there's also a sense in which darkness is a moral problem. Right? It's not just a lack of knowledge, but it's, it's a love for what is evil. So in John chapter 3, 
And we read this, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. So the gospel message is this light shining into the darkness. It is truth invading a world that is confused and deceived and misled. Right? Our world is actually so dark, so confused, so misled, we're actually suspicious even about the concept of truth. Right? That truth is even a thing that can be known. But there in verse 2 of 2 Corinthians 4, Paul, Paul describes his declaration of the gospel as an open statement of the truth, right? When Paul proclaims the gospel, he says, I am openly stating the truth, right? The righteousness of God coming into a world committed to perversion and violence and pride and rebellion, right? That makes sense of what Paul says there in verse six, right? It says there, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Right here, Paul pictures a dark world and the gospel as the light of God shining into that. And he reminds us of a time that God said, let light shine out of darkness. Now, when did that happen? The first thing that might come into your mind is the very first sort of section of the Bible where God says, let there be light. And the dark and chaotic world is flooded with light. And I think Paul does intend for us to pick up on that reference here, but I don't, think that's, I don't think that's the main thing that Paul's alluding to. Because in the prophets, centuries before Paul was writing, God had made a promise that he would send a light to the world. Not a, not a physical light, but a person. A person who would serve to illuminate uh, the darkness. So we read in the prophet Isaiah that he, would, he saw a day when we, be, when we would be able to say the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. What Paul's telling us here in 2 Corinthians is that Jesus has brought that light to us. That the proclamation of the gospel message is a kind of light. It is truth. It is knowledge. It is purity shining into the darkness of our world with all of its ignorance and evil. And that brings us then to the third of the, the themes that we want to pick apart here. So we've seen gospel. We've seen light. Look at what Paul says about glory here. There in verse 4, Paul writes about the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Verse 6, he talks about the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul's saying that the light of the gospel, the truth and the righteousness of the gospel that shines into the darkness of sin and ignorance, he says it's nothing less than the glory of Jesus Christ. When you see the light of the gospel, Paul says you are seeing the glory of Jesus. Here Paul tells us that Christ Jesus is the image of God. As the Son of God, he perfectly represents the, the image, the, the character of the Father. Right? This is something that we see throughout the New Testament. 
So in Colossians, Paul writes this about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. In Philippians, he speaks of Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus in the form of God, the image of God, equality with God here, speaking of the Father, right, was something that, that he had a right to grasp, to hold on tightly to, uh, though he made himself nothing and became a servant, Paul goes on to say. The author of Hebrews adds this. He is the radiance, speaking of Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So the picture that, that Paul connects to here in 2 Corinthians 4 that we see throughout the New Testament is that Jesus is utterly glorious. He is the divine son of God, every bit the image of the majestic and wonderful father. And so when we see Jesus, we see the character and the qualities and the power of God on display. Here Paul is saying that the light of Jesus' glory that's on display, that light, that glory that is the same glory as the Father has, he says it's on display particularly in the proclamation and in the reception of the gospel message. Paul's saying if you want to see the glory of Christ, by which you will see the glory of God the Father, he says, look at the gospel. I just think about what that means. God's splendor, his character, his image, his glory, it is most clearly seen. It is wrapped up. It shines its light most perfectly in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that message that we just rehearsed. Right? We see the glory of God in the beauty of what he created. Right, go up on a mountain and look over a valley. Go to the ocean and, and behold a, a sunset. Right? You will see the glory of God. Right? Consider God's ways, the way he providentially orders all things. Right? Consider God's justice. Consider his holiness. All of those things are glorious. But, but what Paul says here is that the, the, the brightest shining of God's glory is not in any of those things, not in creation, not in his providential ordering of human events, but in the gospel. Think about what the gospel shows us of the glory of God. Right? It shows us the perfection of his love. Right? A love beyond what we could figure out on our own. Right? It turns out, the gospel tells us, that God's love is so glorious, so perfect, that it doesn't actually need to have a lovely object. Right? God doesn't need anything outside of himself in order to be loving because the Bible tells us he is perfect, pure, infinite love. And so the gospel message comes and says God's love is for unlovely people like you and like me because God is so glorious. Right? The, the gospel shows us the glorious wisdom of God, a, gl a glory and a wisdom we could never figure out on our own. Right? The question that that haunts the Old Testament is this. How can God be who he says he is? Do you remember God reveals his, his glory? He reveals himself to Moses. And he says, look, two things you really need to know about me. I'm a merciful God. I forgive. I am gracious. I pardon. And oh, by the way, I don't let any sin go unpunished. 
right? And that, that tension just works its way through the Old Testament. It is a, it is a problem that, that you just can't quite figure out. Right? But the Old Testament just seems to put both those data points right in front of us. God is merciful and gracious. He is perfectly holy and just. Right? And, so, and so we're left to wonder how on earth can both these things be true. Right? We can imagine a God who's one way or the other. Right? We, we, I think in our culture, like the idea of the squishy loving God. Right? Yes, of course God's forgiving. Go out to the Reston Town Center today and say, how do you think... Uh, how do you respond to the message that God is gracious and forgiving? Right, most people are going to say, yes, that's the God I want. We can also imagine a God who's, who's angry, right, who punishes people who do wrong. Right, we watch the news, we see all the bad people doing bad things, right, we, we want a God who, who punishes them. But there's no way we can, we can have a God who's both, right? But friends, the glorious wisdom of God shines in the gospel because the death of Jesus satisfies the justice of God on behalf of his people. Sin does not go unpunished, but Jesus himself paid the price for our sins on the cross. And so now God is gracious and merciful, forgiving the sins of his people, all the while upholding the demands of his justice. Right? Virtues that seemed incompatible, that seemed irreconcilable, are brought together in the gospel of Christ, right? The glory of God shines in the gospel message. It shows us his great wisdom, right? The gospel shows us the love of God. It shows us the wisdom of God. It shows us the holiness of God, the compassion of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God. All of those things are gloriously on display in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel shines the light of God's glory. Right? And that, Paul tells us that glory is nothing less than the image of God. Right? So Paul here holds out this glorious gospel message, a message that shines the light of God's beauty and character. And so let's move on then to our, our second point. If that's the glory of the gospel, then what does it mean for Paul and what does it mean for us? Uh, let me suggest two things we see in this passage. First, the glory of the gospel, as Paul has described it here, it controls the way that we go about Christian ministry. Look at what Paul says there in verses 1 to 2. He says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Right, Paul starts out with therefore, and then he begins to speak about the mercy of God. He says, because I have this ministry, because we have this ministry, he says, through the mercy of God. Right, for Paul, his call to, to gospel ministry came at the same time that he was ushered into the new covenant in Christ's grace, right? If you remember, Paul was an enemy of the Lord Jesus, but Christ stopped him in his tracks, turned him from his sins, made him an object of his mercy, and then called him to spread this gospel message throughout the world. In Acts chapter 26, Paul describes this encounter with Jesus, this call to ministry, uh, he describes it to King Agrippa. 
He tells the king that on the road to Damascus, Jesus said this to him, but rise and stand upon your feet. The, the bright light had knocked him down. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you, uh, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes. Listen, so that they, right, the, the Gentiles, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Right, do you hear echoes of our passage from 2 Corinthians 4 in Paul's rehearsal of, of what Jesus said to him? Right, you see the, the idea of Paul being Jesus' servant, right? That's what he says there at the end of verse 5, right? with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Right, you, this idea of opening eyes. Right? Uh, Jesus says, I'm going to send you to open eyes. Right? We see that, that image here in our passage. You have the idea of darkness and light, the power of, of Satan. Right? All of those themes from Jesus' words to Paul uh, at his conversion make their way into 2 Corinthians 4. Right? For Paul, his call to ministry and his, his conversion right, all came at the same time. And so as a result, because of that mercy that he's received in bringing him to Christ and giving him this ministry, Paul tells us a bunch of things that he doesn't do. He says there in verse 1, we don't lose heart. Right? Despite rejection, despite opposition, Paul continued to press on in the work. He was aware that the ministry to which he had been called was not really about him in the end. But it was about the mercy that God had shown to him and the mercy that God was showing to others through his proclamation of the gospel. And so he kept on with it. He tells us also that he resisted the temptation to distort the message in order to make it more palatable to people. You see that there at the beginning of verse two. He says that we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. Right? He says that he and his, his ministry compatriots, they have renounced or they have disowned the practice of disgraceful and underhanded ways. Here, Paul's probably thinking back to the peddlers of God's word that he criticized at the end of chapter two, right? These were the false teachers that had dazzled the Corinthians with their clever rhetoric. He goes on there in verse two, he says that they refuse to practice cunning, right? They're not gonna live by, by tricks and craftiness. He says, we will not tamper with God's word, right? The Greek word that Paul uses there has the sense of, of twisting something or, or diluting it with water, right? Paul's opponents in Corinth were, were molding the truth of the gospel to fit their purposes and to serve their ends. But Paul understood that he was a servant of Christ and a servant of this message. And so he says, I don't have the right to change it. I'm not gonna dilute it or twist it in any way. That's what Paul doesn't do. He doesn't lose heart. Right? He doesn't practice cunning. He doesn't change the message. There at the end of verse 2, he goes on to say what he does do. He says that his ministry is characterized by an open statement of the truth. Right? Paul makes it his mission to tell it like it is, to plainly proclaim the gospel message. And by doing that, Paul says that he and his ministry team commend themselves. Remember last week in, in chapter 3, 
Paul was asking, do I need letters of recommendation again for the Corinthians? We said this was a theme that was going to keep popping up in this letter. Right? One of Paul's chief reasons for writing 2 Corinthians is to commend himself and his team to this church. And so here he says the way they do that is by a simple, open proclamation of the gospel. Right? He made it his work to shine the light of the gospel into a dark world by speaking plainly and openly about the glory of God in Christ. Notice Paul understands the importance of proclamation. He doesn't say, I came and I lived a Christian lifestyle among you. He doesn't even say, I came and I did acts of mercy and kindness. Right? Those things are good. But Paul understands no one will ever see the glory of Christ in the gospel if there is not a clear and open proclamation. Right? As he says in Romans 10, faith comes through hearing. And so Paul understands that his ministry is one of proclamation to proclaim the glory of God in the death and resurrection of Christ for sinners. There in verse 5, he says that he doesn't proclaim himself. Right? He's not drawing people to the church by his personality, his gifts, his wisdom. But instead, he says there in verse 5, he proclaims Jesus Christ as Lord. Right? That is the light of the gospel shining in his message. Right? It's nothing less than the glory of God. Paul seems to hope that the sincerity and the integrity of his ministry will, will connect with people in their conscience, in their capacity for moral judgment. He says there at the end of verse 2 that they commend themselves to everyone's conscience. But even more importantly, Paul repeats something he'd said back in chapter 2 when he says there at the end of verse 3 that he conducts his ministry in the sight of God. Paul is acutely aware that the Lord is his evaluator, right? Even if many of the people at Corinth had rejected his message, even if some of the Corinthians preferred false teachers, Paul says, I'm going to continue conducting myself with integrity because the Lord who called me, the Lord who in his, in his mercy gave me this ministry, he is still present with me and I am living out my life before his face. And so we're brought back to a point that Paul seems to weave into every section of this letter. And again, it's a principle we cannot hear too often, right? That what matters in Christian ministry, right? In whatever capacity you serve the Lord's church, whether you have an office like elder or deacon, if you have a consistent area of service like I-55 or children's ministry or women's ministry, or if you simply serve the church in the ordinary way that we serve one another, right? By loving, caring for one another, helping one another to grow in Christ, praying for one another. What matters in your ministry, whatever it is, and if you're a Christian, you have a ministry, right? If you're a member of this church, you have a vital role that you've been empowered by the Spirit of God to do to build up this church, right? We saw that back in 1 Corinthians, Right? What matters in your ministry, whatever it is, is not spectacular, immediate, visible results, not popularity, certainly not cutting-edge cleverness, but Paul reminds us yet again what matters is conformity to the truth of the gospel. And friends, that's actually hard work. Life in this world tends to reward short shortcuts and sleight of hand. Right, there is something in us that oftentimes prefers cleverness and entertainment. 
right? We want cutting edge social commentary. We want emotional resonance. We gravitate towards things that seem immediately practical and that make us feel good about ourselves. But here Paul is like the manager of a would-be world-class restaurant, right? Just like that guy said, I'm committed to doing whatever's good for the restaurant. Paul's operating principle, the thing by which he judges everything else is what is good for the gospel, right? What is true? What is right in the sight of God? And so friends, we need to keep that at the center of our life together. We need to hold one another accountable to that. That needs to be our operating principle and the thing that guides us as a church as we make decisions. The second thing for us in terms of how all of this applies to us, and this will be where we conclude this morning, is that the light of the gospel message is something that we have to see for ourselves, right? It's, it, it's a light that shines into our hearts. It's a light, it's a, it's a light that, that, that has to get inside of us, that we have to be able to, to perceive and, and savor and enjoy, right? In, in this passage, Paul contrasts two different kinds of people, right? The, the open proclamation of the gospel goes out into the world and Paul sees that there are two kinds of people with two radically different responses to this gospel message. There in verses three to four, he writes about those who are perishing. He says there, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Brothers and sisters, this is heavy. It ought to grieve us deeply. It ought to break our hearts with compassion. It ought to drive us in prayer, or to prayer rather, on behalf of our families, on behalf of the, the people in our lives, on behalf of the nations of the world that are trapped in the condition that Paul describes here. Right? Paul understands that a great portion of humanity is perishing spiritually, still clinging to their sin and rebellion, still under God's just condemnation for their sins. Right? What's the problem with these kinds of people? Why do people hear the open proclamation of the gospel and reject it? and so stay condemned in their sin, right? Is it a problem with their intelligence? Are they morally deficient? Do they have a particular hatred and antipathy towards God? Well, Paul tells us what's wrong right here. He says it's a problem with their sight. He says there that there is a veil over the eyes of people who do not believe in Jesus. It's not, a, it's not a physical veil, of course, right? The problem is not with their physical sight. It's a, it's a spiritual problem. It's an inability to perceive spiritual reality. Right here, we're reminded of what we saw last week in chapter three. Paul talked there about the veil over Moses's face that kept the people of Israel from seeing the, the fading glory of the old covenant. And in 2 Corinthians 3, 16, Paul says that when someone turns to Christ, that veil is removed. Right, suddenly that, that person's mind is able to understand a truth that they couldn't see before. Here in verse 4, we see that this veil has its origin in the work of the devil. 
Paul calls him the God of this world. He says, uh, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Paul calls him the God of this world, not because he's putting him on par with the true God of the universe, but rather saying that he functions with, with some given authority in this world, this, this realm of unbelief and those who are perishing. And the devil's work, he says here, is to veil the glory of Christ so that it can't be seen. Now, how does that happen? How does the devil veil the glory of Christ so that we can't perceive it? Paul doesn't exactly tell us here, but it does seem like there are two strategies at work. One is to make Christ seem not glorious, right? To keep us from perceiving the brilliance of the glorious light of the gospel. So anything that prevents the gospel from being proclaimed, anything that mocks the gospel or ridicules the Lord Jesus or, or casts doubt upon it, right? That's part of Satan's strategy to make Christ seem not glorious. But it seems that the other part is that he also makes other things seem more wonderful. Right? I think most people can't perceive the glory of God in Christ. They can't see what is the, the bright light shining from the gospel message because other things seem brighter to them. Right? If the pleasures of wealth and success and drink and sex, if those things seem like the absolute brightest light in the universe to you, right? If you can't imagine any greater joy, any more perfect truth, well, then the gospel is going to seem like a threat, right? The gospel is going to seem like a dimmer switch that, that threatens to actually turn down the glory in your life. And so you can see why Paul was so anxious to put the glory of Christ in the gospel on display by an open proclamation of the truth, right? If the devil's MO is to keep people from seeing that light, to make them unable to perceive the glory of God in the face of Christ, right? To make other things seem brighter by comparison, then Paul's work is to make it as plain and clear as possible, right? Remember when Jesus commissioned him Right, in Acts 26, he told Agrippa, he said his job was to go and to open their eyes that they might turn from darkness to light. Friend, if you've not come to Christ in humble faith, if you are an unbeliever, to use Paul's words here, I hope you can see that your problem, right, the thing that's keeping you from Jesus, it's not a lack of evidence. It's not any philosophical uncertainties that you might have outstanding. It's not the fact that you know Christians who behave in uncoming, unbecoming ways. No, but the most basic problem you have is an inability to perceive the, the, the truest truth in the universe. Your problem is an inability to perceive the glory of God shining in the gospel message. Right? It's, it's an inability to see the goodness and the love and the mercy of Jesus in the message of his death and resurrection. It's our hope that we've put him on display for you this morning by an open statement of the truth. It is our earnest prayer that you would be able to see the beauty and glory of Jesus and turn to him today for salvation. The bad news is that you and I are unable to, to remove that veil from our eyes. 
We lack the power to do that. Otherwise, I would do it for you. But the good news is that God doesn't lack the power. That's the only way there can be a second category of person, a second way of responding to the gospel. You see there in verse 6, Paul says, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We were all by nature blind to the glory that we need to see, to perceive, to delight in, so that we might turn to Jesus and be saved. But God can, and he does, shine his light into our hearts. He, He removes that veil so that we can perceive what we couldn't see. The Spirit of God works as the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed. God is not reluctant to save us. He's not limited or in any way or, or frustrated by the devil's activity. And so if you're not yet a Christian, maybe you were invited by a friend this morning. Maybe you're here every week, but you've never closed with Christ by putting your trust in him. Then ask God to help you. Pray earnestly to him that you might be able to see what you can't see right now. I promise you, if you could get one true glimpse of the glory of Christ in his death and resurrection, you would love him and you would treasure him. You would go to him and you would trust him. Brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian, It is only because God in his great mercy has removed the veil and enabled you to see what you could never see on your own. He has freed you from the blindness that characterized your life up until that point. Being a follower of Jesus, being made able to see the light of the glory of the gospel, at its root, being a Christian is not a program of of moral reform. It is not a theological information dump. It is nothing less than a display of and an apprehension of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, who is his perfect image. Christian, that's why God has saved you, so that you might be able to see what you didn't see before, and so that you, as we thought about last week, might behold him and be transformed increasingly into his glorious image. And brothers and sisters, that's that's the power in which we walk. That's the power that you and I need in order to fight sin and temptation and to grow in godliness, right? We we grow in godliness. We resist temptation by becoming more and more aware of the light, being more and more able to perceive the glory of God, right? To, To see that thing that our soul was made for, that our soul longs for more than anything else, To see that it shines not in the pleasures of sin, but in the face of Jesus. And so what do we need to do? It's amazing this passage really doesn't have much in the way of imperatives. It doesn't say, okay, Christian, now go out and do this. But I think what we need to do is is simply continue to behold. To to simply see and to, to ask God for greater insight, greater clarity, greater apprehension of, greater delight in the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ as it's displayed for us in the gospel. And brothers and sisters, in his great kindness, the Lord puts his glory on display for us 
in the Lord's table. It is here in the bread that represents Jesus' broken body and in the cup that represents his shed blood. It's here that the resurrected Lord Jesus invites us to come and to delight, right? To, to internalize, to perceive, to taste the truth and the love and the radiance of his gospel, to embrace him by faith and to perceive the glory of God in his face. So brothers and sisters, let's come now to the table and let's celebrate this great salvation together. But first, let's pray. Oh, Father, we do delight in you and in your ways. We see by your kindness the light and the glory of, of your image shining in the face of your Son given to us in your gospel. Our God, we delight in everything that the gospel shows us about you, about your wisdom, your perfection, your love, your grace, your mercy to sinners like us. Holy Spirit, we ask, we ask humbly, earnestly, we ask with broken hearts. We ask that if there's any here who, who are at the moment unable to see that glory, who are veiled in their perception by the work of the evil one, Spirit, we pray uh, that you would be merciful and kind, that you would show yourself strong to save, that you would remove that veil and enable them to perceive the glory of Christ and to embrace him by faith. We pray that same thing, Spirit, for, for the people in our lives, for our family members, our neighbors, our coworkers. We pray that, Spirit, for the nations. We ask that you would raise up more and more people from our midst who would go out, who would make it their life's work to openly proclaim the gospel all over the world so that more and more people might perceive the glory of our Lord Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.